Welcome to another episode of the CNS Summit Podcast. This is a special episode that was recorded on a webinar on Friday, May 8th, 2020. In this recording, we hear a conversation between Dr. Amy Abernathy and Dr. Amir Kalali. Dr. Abernathy is the Principal Deputy Commissioner and Acting CIO of the FDA, and Dr. Kalali is the Chief Curator of CNS Summit. They discuss how COVID-19 is impacting drug development, how the FDA is aligning and responding to the pandemic, and unexpected ways the pandemic may influence clinical research and medicine. For more podcasts like this, be sure to subscribe to the CNS Summit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also get this on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Don't forget you can also visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements. And now, here's the podcast. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening. Um, welcome to this week's CNS Summit Community Call on Navigating the COVID Crisis. Uh, thank you for participating in your busy week. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, um, our friend, Dr. Amy Abernethy, who's the Principal Deputy Commissioner and Acting CIO of the FDA. And as you know, was our keynote speaker at CNS Summit 2019. I'm very grateful that you took time from your, I'm sure, what is very busy schedule at the moment. So welcome, Amy. Appreciate you being with us. Um, great. So um, how, how are things going on with you, Amy? How, how are you feeling? What's going on? Um, well, uh, probably like you, my days are very, very busy at the moment. And certainly uh, my, my mind has shifted to almost all things COVID over the last eight uh, to 10 weeks or so. And, and certainly um, in the most concentrated fashion in the last eight weeks. The, I, I feel positive. You feel positive. Has the pandemic affected you personally? Uh, yeah. Um, about two weeks ago, two of my family members, uh, they're both cousins, but they felt like aunt and uncle to me. They, they mm -hmm. passed away within 36 hours of each other. I'm very sorry and, to hear that. Yeah. I, I think that up until then, it was an abstract uh, quality that I counted as I was looking at a map each day. And then suddenly it was very near and dear to my heart. Well, at least I think you have the knowing that you're doing something about COVID and you're reactively in the front lines of that fight. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that gives you some comfort. Yeah, um, I think it also makes it much more relevant. Um, so as I think about trying to figure yeah. out what is the disease and its treatments, I also try and figure out what is this going to mean for patients and families every day as they're trying to, trying to navigate the process. And that's been... Um, Terrible for my family, but actually helpful as I've thought about managing COVID going forward. You know, I really appreciate you sort of opening and talking about, you know, how it's affected you personally. And you sitting where you do FDA, you see probably more data than pretty much anyone else around this. So, you know, most of us, as we, you know, scientists on the school, we look at all the data that's coming in every day. It's kind of, you know, you might feel optimistic, pessimistic. So from your perspective of seeing everything that you do, I'm sure our community would like to know, you know, from your scientific perspective and what you see, where are you on the optimism, pessimism scale at the moment? Huh. Okay, well, so we'll put optimism at a 10 and a pessimism at a zero. I probably put myself at, at an 8.8 eight to a 9. Great. I, I think that the pessimism pieces for me are really around the numbers and the number of people affected around the world as well as the United States, as, as well as worries about COVID-19 coming back as another wave um, in the future. I think my optimism scale is because we're gonna learn a lot about how to make better um, healthcare decisions in the future, better medicine um, from the standpoint of both healthcare delivery as well as clinical development in the future. And um, you know, this is one of those situations where we should not let a, uh, pandemic uh, go to waste or stop us from figuring out how to come up with creative solutions. Yeah. You know, we were both together in January. I think we were on the same roadshow with CES and JP Morgan and other meetings. Um, I know we were chatting about that afterwards. And uh, do you think that um, because we were both there that we might already uh, have been infected and I'm waiting for that reliable IgG test coming? What are your thoughts about that? Because you were there with me, right, in those meetings. Yeah. I, I was there too. I got this terrible respiratory illness um, in early January that uh, at, at the time, a lot of people were talking about it because 
my, my family could hear it when I was talking on the phone and it kept me from going to work. Now that I look back, I do wonder whether or not uh, I got COVID in the middle of all those travels. So I too am waiting for the IgG um, because this is going to help us sort out uh, what's already been going on in our country. uh, And then also how do we understand the immunity of the disease? Absolutely. Um, well, I think we're all looking to see when those come out that we can use them you know, sensibly and have uh, evidence based. That's great. Uh, now, I, I mentioned at the beginning that not only are you the principal deputy commissioner, you're also the acting CIO. What does that mean? And, you know, what are you doing as the acting CIO at FDA? So, and, and this will be relevant as we talk through COVID. When I first got to FDA as principal deputy commissioner, I thought my job was going to be to focus on real-world data and personalized medicine. And when I arrived, what I realized was that we could really only focus on real-world data, personalized medicine, and that kind of a future if the FDA updated its technologies, its cloud-forward strategy, as well as our overall strategy to how to use data. So I took on the acting CIO role almost exactly a year ago um, this month. And as a part of that, we've announced the Technology Modernization Action Plan. We've moved to a cloud-forward strategy. We've moved to a new data strategy, which turns out to be critical features, um, which I wish was farther along as COVID came along, but at least had been started to get going, and we could draw upon that as we're addressing COVID. So with those dual roles, what does a given day look like for you, um, knowing that it can vary a lot? And I guess you're working from home now, right? Yes, I'm working from home in North Carolina. I was commuting from North Carolina to D.C. every week uh, as a part of my FDA role, uh, but now I've sheltered in place. Yes. Um, <laughs> it saved a lot of flying time. Yeah. Yes, it's, actually, it saved me a lot of travel time and just you know, general day prep time. So my day these days are is that I usually get up around five, and I'm on COVID-related calls and emails from about sort of 5.45 in the morning till about 10.45 at night. It's interesting that six, eight weeks ago, my COVID time was about five hours of my day. and I was still otherwise taking care of trans agency issues like CBD or um, focusing on data strategy. Now everything is focused on COVID, but it's still making sure that we continue to do the same underlying work. How do we get the keep moving the data strategy forward, but make sure that we also address the pandemic? How do we make sure we um, are addressing the needs of the workforce of FDA? Because I have a lot of responsibilities that relates to managing FDA and, you know, making sure we move through the pandemic within that context. So my day is still really the same core elements of day-to-day cross-agency functioning, but now the sort of core use case, so to speak, is COVID. So that's the 18-hour day. How are you keeping sane and healthy through that? <laughs> um, you know, so first of all, I decided to put on my um, act like an intern hat. And so, you know, when you kind of go back to being a, a medical intern, you know, what do you do to make sure you maintain um, your personal sanity and, and also um, your physical health? I, I personally try to make sure I exercise every day. Um, I walk outside on this path around the lake around my house um, and take teleconferences for somewhere around uh, six to 10 hours a day, I mean, 10 miles a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, also make sure I spend some time um, getting real food because I, I discovered that one of the problems when you're working like that is you forget to eat unless you actually make yourself sit down and get real meals. Right. I'm sure many people on the call have been coming across the same problems and trying to solve them. That's great. Now, in talking about COVID-19, just generally first, do you have any general observations about the pandemic so far from your perspective? You know, when you sent me the list of questions um, for today um, that we might get into, I saw this question and I tried to think about this from the perspective of, you know, what are words about COVID-19 that have really stuck out for me as describing my general observations. And and the words I chose were community, pace, urgency, hope, and learning. I I think that those have been the the words that describe for me what COVID has felt like as both a part of FDA, but also sort of part of larger humanity going through this. So let me just pick three of those randomly. So tell me about why community. 
Oh, so, you know, one of the things I think that's been really interesting about COVID-19 is the uh, we're all in it to solve it spirit. And, and it, as an example, we'll probably get into some work that we've been doing on the real world data side in a little bit, but the, the work to, to achieve, um, you know, real results and outcomes quickly has been possible because everybody's in it to solve the problem in a non-competitive way. Like, yeah. let's just get it done. I also reflect on, um, you know, sort of the kind of taking care of your neighbor spirit, even if you can't uh, go and sit in each other's house. Yeah. Um, one of my neighbors puts uh, samosas out on my front porch and then I go pick up the plate of samosas and come in and keep, uh, and keep having dinner. What about pace? You talked about pace. Uh, so, you know, I think when I first started working in COVID-19, I was treating it like a sprint and really shifting the pace to being a very thoughtful marathon, trying to figure out how do you continue with 18 hour days because that is the reality of the need yep. while also um, making sure that you're sequentially moving the needle and getting work done. Yep. Um, but keep, like the other part is to keep your eye several steps ahead. I, I think part of running a marathon is you know what you're trying to get to and, and you chunk it out and figure out what you need to do to get there. And that's been a really kind of key task in starting to address COVID. And how has COVID impacted the work in general at FDA? Are there ways that's impacted it? It's in a lot of ways. Um, so just like in any of your organizations, um, you know, FDA is an organization with 18,000 employees plus, um, you know, another four or 5,000 contractors. So we've had to figure out how do we move to a largely teleworking environment, but still get the work done. You need FDA continuing to, to do our work. And so um, I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to make sure that we do that in a way that is um, efficient, that doesn't frustrate people, but also re respects the need to, to be able um, to, uh, to do high quality work. Yeah. Um, I think that another way that works changed at FDA um, is that the urgency of COVID, and I think we'll get into this more, has forced us to move to what I call portfolio thinking. So largely at FDA, um, for many, much of the work that we do, we wait until an application comes to us. And then we have a series of activities that we follow after that. Or we watch for a foodborne outbreak and then we have a set of activities. Now we're needing to start to ask the question, where do we think we need to go? And what as FDA do we need to actively do to either motivate new science and clinical development or put in place um, new actions to anticipate where things are going in um, also a prioritized portfolio way. And that's been interesting to watch. So do you think, do you think yeah. there's ways that FDA could be more effective in the future, the results of the work you're doing now to respond to the pandemic? Absolutely. I, you know, one example of how we're going to be better in the future, I, I hope is that, um, you know, we always talk about strategic thinking, but actually this makes the idea of strategic thinking and what it looks like and what it looks like in play, very, very tangible. And so I think one way that we're going to be better in the future is we are going to be able to say, here are the core elements of strategic thinking at FDA as well as how FDA interfaces with the rest of HHS and government. And these are the, these are the kinds of capabilities we want to maintain in the future. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, FDA sees itself, I'm, I'm particularly talking about the medical product side, as regulating medical products and their ability to get to market, but not regulating healthcare um, and, and the delivery of healthcare Therefore, we tend to watch but otherwise stay away from the healthcare delivery side. I, I think COVID-19 is showing, at least me, and, and I think larger body of thinking at, at, at FDA, that we really have to understand the healthcare delivery side because that informs what's going to happen with drug shortages. As, the out, as, as COVID-19 changes across time, it informs what are the new therapeutics going to be needed for thrombobolic phenomena or for um, acute renal failure in the setting of COVID. So there's a lot of needing to be closer to healthcare delivery that I think is, is going to be probably different and better in the future about how FDA thinks. And then 
Yeah, I mentioned very early um, that I came to FDA and thought I was going to be focusing on rural data, precision medicine, and discovered I needed to focus on first building the technical infrastructure and the data infrastructure. And man, oh man, is it that it been, you know, kind of showcased in the most obvious ways how we've got to get that right in order to be efficient as an agency, but also to help make the rest of industry very, very efficient in what they do. So, Jeff, I mean, everyone would agree that the pandemic will change many sectors, including medicine and clinical research. Are there any unexpected ways that you would predict that the pandemic might change our world in clinical research and medicine? Yeah, you know, so I went into this issue of um, strategic thinking and portfolio thinking, and mm-hmm. I, I reflect on sort of three key areas that the pandemic is changing at FDA which I think will also have implications um, for the future. So the first is something that uh, we feel all around us, which is that the FDA is needed to figure out how to have more regulatory flexibility, loosened regulations, so to speak, in order to make sure that we're appropriately managing um, the pandemic. This looks like emergency use authorizations and um, COVID-specific guidances and also enforcement discretion. And, um, you know, as we start to have this shifts in regulatory flexibility, what I think that this is teaching us a lot about is what aspects of those regulations are truly going to be needed in the future and, and where those shifts might be. And so, you know, I think one area that medicine um, and, and clinical research may be changing in the future is learning from what regulations are working for us as a part of the COVID-19 story, what do we want to continue, and also learning from how can we watch the impact of regulatory change and adjust it. And that's my second observation. You know, in the National Academy of Medicine, before I came to this role, one of the big conversations we were having was essentially um, evidence-based health policy. The idea that as policy gets enacted, we now watch the impact of the health policy through data and then figure out how to now right-size health policy for the, for the next step. Yep. And within the context of COVID-19, what I'm seeing is we're using real-world data and we're using real-world learning to understand the impact of our regulatory flexibility and that information is going to help us right-size the decisions we're right, making right now, as well as you know, consider our policies in the future. And so I sort of think that there's going to be more understanding of what essentially evidence-informed regulato- regulatory policy actually looks like. And that greatly influences the development of our clinical trials. It greatly um, influences how we think about medical products post approval um, and, and sort of in the full life cycle management. So this is the second thing that I feel like is going to be better over time and, and that I've been watching. Um, the third is something I alluded to a few minutes ago, and, and it's really interesting to sort of watch it play out right now. And, and it's what I've been largely calling portfolio thinking. So um, as we prepare for managing COVID-19 right now, as well as managing COVID-19 into the future, perhaps a wave in the fall, we essentially have the summer to get a lot of things figured out. We simultaneously need to work on um, improving our diagnostic capabilities while searching for a vaccine, while improving our availability of drugs and biologics, while also trying to do things like manage drug shortages. That's a lot of things to try and do at the same time. And so as a result, just like anything else, we've got to prioritize what we're going to do, but keep all those swim lanes quickly moving. And prioritization includes prioritization inside the agency, you know, sort of the, having enough people to, to, to do all the, that kind of work. It means, and then come back to that if you're interested so it, it, it also means trying to decide what are going to be essentially the best shots on goal and keep those moving quickly, right? Yep. And make sure there's every opportunity. 
and recognizing that, for example, there's only, only so many clinical trial resources that you can put to bear to all of this um, activity and how do you ma make sure you thoughtfully allocate. And so I think that one of the other things that's going to change, I hope, it is kind of trans-agency but also trans-industry thinking as it relates to how do we have strategic, thoughtful, industry-wide, agency-wide, academia-wide approaches to really beating huge problems that are sitting in front of us in health. Great. Thank you. So, so far, Amy, I think the questions we had, I gave myself the um, privilege of asking you the initial questions that I'd sort of put together. We're now going to go to a bunch of questions that came from everyone on the call. And I apologize in, uh, in advance that we had way too many questions that could possibly cover. So we've kind of chosen um, a few of them to, to go through. So if, if your particular question wasn't covered, I apologize. We're going to get through as many as we can. Um, the first question we had from the community was, you know, the FDA has been very helpful regarding adapting existing guidances and modifying some of those guidances to allow greater flexibility during the pandemic. The question is, when do you predict that those, what they call accommodations, might start to be rolled back? So, so practically speaking, um, the way uh, that the public health emergency would play out is that COVID-specific accommodations um, actually uh, get rolled back or end at the end of, of a designated public health emergency. So, so that, that's already sort of pre-specified. But, you know, as I think about it, there are, you know, several ways um, of, uh, of rolling back. Uh, so there's some things that we have um, uh, developed regulatory flexibility around in order to accommodate the current pandemic, but that will appropriately need to be right-sized or rolled back um, after the public health emergency. And a good example there, for example, is a um, investigational product that needs to be infused by an investigator or sub-investigator and the allowance of a local physician to that's not a sub-investigator to infuse that medical product. Um, and yep. those, I, you know, I anticipate we're going to see those roll back at the end of public health emergency. There are other areas of regulatory flexibility that we have already put in place pre-COVID, but where the situation of the pandemic has now essentially amplified the importance of that flexibility and, um, you know, helps the entire community writ large flip, figure out how to put that into play. And an example there is, for example, um, uh, telemedicine visits um, as a way of having um, some of the clinical trial visits conducted um, remotely. And we, in fact, have had guidances prior to COVID-19 um, around such activity, and we've actually tried to also um, advance our, our thinking and thinking across industry uh, on DCTs. But you know, practically speaking, I think post-COVID, those guidances will continue to be there, but they'll be heightened um, understanding uh, of the possible. Mm -hmm. And then I think the last piece here is that um, there'll be those COVID-specific um, areas of regulatory flexibility where, by definition, the guidance will roll back. Um, the emergency use authorization will be peeled away. However, there'll be very substantive thinking and learning that will have taken place that now will be promulgated through new guidances in the future. And I think this is one of the places to, to watch and also be part of the conversation because um, what I anticipate is going to happen is we're going to have learned a lot during this pandemic about how we can um, confidently you know, conduct clinical trials in new ways in the future. That's great. That makes perfect sense. Um, now, earlier on, you were talking about your interest in real-world evidence and real-world data. What is the FDA doing right now with respect to that in the context of COVID-19? That's interesting. Um, I think there's been a recognition across government mm -hmm. that real-world data likely um, has a number of responsibilities in the context of COVID-19. And first thing I want to do is sort of divide the um, conversation from, between rural evidence and rural data to help us make a bunch of different kinds of decisions versus specifically FDA regulatory actions um, and 
you know, these are two things that are being explored in parallel, but are are, are still distinct. Across government, though, there's been an understanding that we really need to be able to draw from information housing, electronic health records and claims and our better ability to use technical capabilities to do data data curation to get really high value data sets that can be rapidly analyzed to help us know everything from uh, the sort of spread of the outbreak and basic epidemiology to um, informing, for example, drug shortages. There's also been, uh, you know, an observation that some drugs are being used in the, um, that are already on market and now are being used in this sort of off-label setting. And that gives us the chance to explore when patients are receiving those drugs, potential safety issues, as well as potential effect on the outcome for COVID-19. So a lot of activities. And so what we did at FDA is said, okay, NIH is focused predominantly on aggregating data from the CTSAs in other ways. At FDA, we're going to come at this from a different direction. We built a relationship with the Reagan Udall Foundation, which is the FDA, the congressionally mandated public-private partnership for FDA. And through the Reagan Udall Foundation, we built something called the Evidence Accelerator. And what we said in the Evidence Accelerator is we're going to come at real-world data from the following perspective. There are many data holders out there with well-curated, high-quality data sets ready to go or almost ready to go. There's also spectacular analytic teams, sometimes already working together, even in the same organization or institution, but other times ready to partner. And so let's leverage what our capabilities that are already out there and see if we can't put them in play really quickly. And so we built a list of questions that were high-value questions for FDA, everything from um, issues as it relates to drug shortages to um, questions around, for example, help us find um, patients for convalescent plasma. And then we said, help us know, do you think you can answer those questions in the next two weeks, three to 12 weeks, or 12 weeks plus? And, and then asked, are you willing to come to the table in addressing those kind of questions in a very quick way? And what we found was that indeed there were data holders ready to answer such questions. We found that um, not only uh, could uh, they, or were they willing to come to the table, but they, they did so all on their own volition. And, and really this is a public private partnership where no money is, is moving around for the most part. And that people started working quickly and two practical examples. Um, one is there's a parallel analysis project going on where somewhere between eight and 12 um, different uh, really large scale, high quality curated data sets are all answering exactly the same question with a um, same, similar template for a, a statistical analysis plan. The, question, the first question is hydroxychloroquine um, and patients who are receiving hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin for COVID-19 versus patients who have not been receiving COVID-19-specific therapies, focusing on patients in the hospital. Once that sort of master platform gets set up, then we will start to insert the next set of questions. And those teams are already working um, with the analysis plan ready to go and and, and chunking through quickly. Um, Similarly, we're now starting to ask, what about diagnostics and real-world performance of diagnostics? Can we look at the interrelationship between patients who are known RT-PCR positive and then serology tests being done in the community? And can we understand real-world performance of diagnostics? So these are questions that are now starting to move along quickly and teams are coming to the table. The last thing I'll say about this is that we are also examining replicability and essentially quality of data sets as well as quality of outcome to try and help us understand what are the high value tasks we can put these data sets and and this work towards. Um, And and some of that's got to do with describing the natural history of COVID-19, setting benchmarks, helping us plan clinical trials, helping us find patients. And that work is ongoing and, and it's been quite interesting to see it really happen. Well, thank you for that very comprehensive answer about what's happening with RWD at the FTA. <laughs> I love that. So I'm going to read you some uh, a couple of long questions from our community. So the first one is, you've been an advocate of expanded use of technology and research, and you wrote a paper in 2008, apparently they follow all your uh, publications. So you wrote a paper in 2008, 
about the positive impacts of moving to electronic patient reported outcome data collection. There has been a surge of new technologies introduced in the past few months that may be useful in helping researchers and regulators respond to the pandemic. So here's the question. How can the FDA expedite the process for reviewing these new technologies and ensure that the valid ones are widely available in a timely manner? Interesting. Um, so first of all, that paper in 2008, um, we were looking at uh, the ability to collect rural um, patient-reported outcomes at scale and marry that to electronic health record data sets. Um, and, and in fact, it was uh, some uh, of the background work I was doing at the time that, that, that's very similar to what we're doing in, in the Evidence Accelerator now. Um, so it, it's interesting that you bring that paper up. Um, practically speaking, as a part of um, our authority as FDA, we can issue emergency use authorizations um, for new technologies that are potentially effective or beneficial in this particular scenario of COVID-19. Um, the, in order for that to happen, a manufacturer needs to come to us and say, here's why we believe that it's effective, here's why we think that the benefit out risk, outweighs any risk, and here's why there's no other alternative. But those EUAs actually can indeed um, be issued and they are starting to happen. Um, in fact, we have a hotline um, where you can call FDA 24 hours a day. I, I, I recently went and visited um, the place where the people with the hotline actually sit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, they get phone calls all day long. Um, and there's also email boxes and other ways that, that you can um, get in touch with us. It's the same mechanism that's been used um, for in vitro diagnostics, for example, in, in, in trying to move along our EUA process. So that, that process is indeed there. And, and, you know, my thought is as new technologies come to bear that can help us, for example, accelerate some of the activities we need to have happen on the clinical trial side, make sure we have um, good ways of um, keeping track of patient needs in the community, making sure that we um, have um, better assessments of uh Objective findings um, such as pulse ox, but also um, subjective findings such as patient concerns. Those kind of activities really can help um, in a setting like COVID-19, and we should be thinking about all of those. Great. So the next question I have uh, from the um, community is, many sponsor companies have been adapting their trials to accommodate remote or virtual visits. Many are doing that contingency, uh, assuming there will be a return to more regular cadence of in-person visits as stay-at-home orders are lifted. So two questions here. One is, should the switch to remote and virtual data collection be temporary where it's implemented? And what should sponsors and investigators be considering these situations as we go along this summer? Well, so as I mentioned before, we already have some places where the more flexible thinking was evident in our guidances even before um, COVID-19. And, and so um, as we think about, for example, remote um, visits for clinical trials, um, asking the question for my clinical trial, should this, um, should this proceed? Those that were um, specific flexibilities put in place for COVID-19 as an emergency use, that those will, will be peeled back, so, as I mentioned before. Um, you know, then the question becomes, um, for a sponsor, how do you make the decision about what do you do um, for your clinical trial? And I think you need, you need to sort of bring to that some pragmatic thinking that's got to do with the um, integrity of your trial, the integrity of the data, and the data quality within your trial, as well as the ability to maintain patient safety and, and, and have um, clear understanding of safety across time. You know, if you had a study, for example, that had predominantly all inpatient visits and you have information from data quality assessments that the remote visits are giving you incomplete information or you can't fully assess your endpoints or other concerns, then the data quality concerns that come from the remote visits may overwhelm the overall integrity of the trial. And that might be a really important signal that it's that, that you should be returning to your inpatient visits, for example, across your yeah. trial. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you find that you can see consistent data quality, better patient adherence, 
patient safety, that might be a really strong signal that remote visits are actually a more effective mm-hmm. and a higher quality direction for you to go in your clinical trials. I think that really the most important thing is to start off with the core principles of what maintains the integrity of the data and maintains the integrity of the outcomes of the trial, as well as patient safety, and then walk your way through that. And as, as um, sponsors of trials are kind of thinking this through, what's been your experience of how they're interacting with the agency to kind of try and get some sense of where the agency can guide them? So, so we've been inviting sponsors to, you know, call us, interact with us, and do so early. Uh, you know, our, our, our approach to this has been it's more important to keep having the conversations and, and to invite those conversations than to sort of leave it to the end, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. We also recognize that in times of great urgency, there may need, there may need to be for a sponsor the making a decision on a fly, on the fly and there's not enough time to, to take um, the action of interfacing with us first. And, and so those are the kind of balances we think sponsors are going to need to take. But we have been, um, we've tried to be very forward about inviting the conversation at the agency. Great. Um, next question I have is around the uh, recent guidance on enforcement policy for digital health devices for treating psychiatric disorders. Um, and I know companies like Achille and Pear have sort of utilized that to bring some products to market. Can you give us a little background on that and, you know, what, why that was done and any um, plans for expedited approval for these digital interventions in the future? Yes, I, you know, I think this goes along with um, the core message before we were thinking about other digital health tools, which is that um, there is the, op- the option within the context of our authorities as FDA to provide regulatory flex- flexibility and emergency use authorizations when there is a clear need where it looks like benefit outweighs risk and where, where there's not better options. And, and certainly in the context of uh, mental health and sort of mental health management within the context of the pandemic, that was an area of great concern. Um, and so the goal of this um, guidance is to expand the availability of digital health therapeutic devices, um, specifically in the context of psychiatric disorders and availability to, to care for patients in their home. Um, post-pandemic, uh, because emergency use authorizations are limited um, to the period of time of the of the emergency, um, we anticipate what was going to happen is we learn from what's been happening right now, and then that will inform uh, where we go with this thinking in the future. So it's kind of a related question about mental health. Another question here is the FDA has a new initiative for very rapid review and approval of protocols related to possible treatments of COVID-19. It's not clear whether this would include possible treatments for mental health problems related to COVID-19. Can you comment on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so so CTAP um, and these protocols, they really specifically focus on um, the physical illness um, yep. and that's the way that the program's been overall written. Um, but we are also very aware of the health ta- the mental health challenges in COVID-19 um, and the need for treatments. So that, you know, if we invite um, the bringing forward of such protocols, um, we just would need to treat it ordinarily. It doesn't necessarily fit under the definition of the CTAP program. This is a really important area of development. That's great. Um, another question that came was really around the uh, uh, sort of innovative technology where there might be some overarching guidance from FDA around encouraging, you know, some innovative technologies, but then uh, some of the divisions, you know, across CEDA and CEBA might sort of have different views. Are there ways that, um, you know, how is best practices shared within FDA to sort of of between different groups so uh, people can get a consistent kind of voice, as it were, where possible? And that's true for any large organization, clearly. Yeah, so what are your thoughts about that? Uh, You know, I I, I have a number of thoughts. And, you know, a a parallel example um, from my role before coming to FDA was that um, – the definitions around rural data and rural evidence were different between uh, CDR and CDRH. Um, so, yeah. you know, kind of uh, some yeah. of these issues around the need for harmonization. Um, I think, you know, 
what, what you're bringing up is that um, the different centers and different parts of the agency have, have different responsibility and, and sort of different um, approaches sometimes to similar questions. Also, just like in any large organization, even within the same center, there um, are sort of different internal cultures for different divisions. Um, Absolutely. And we work very hard to identify those areas of divergence and try and work through what will it take to find more harmonization. Sometimes that works well, sometimes it doesn't. But importantly, when we get to the place of actually the review, and this is the way that, that I've usually thought about it, um, that you know, at the time of the actual review, you need the experts in the review division who have the expertise both in the regulatory review as well as in the scientific and medical thinking mm -hmm. um, the problem, working on it at that point in time. And, and so really at that point really is up to the review divisions as to how they do their work. But we can continue to work on surfacing places that need harmonization yeah. and then starting to work our way through that. That makes sense. A question we have from someone who I think has moved from kind of a large corporation background to more smaller emerging biotech. Um, the question was, why is a reliable source to know if a method of televisits or remote monitoring is HIPAA compliant or GDPR PR compliant? Small companies may not necessarily have the in-house uh, skills or uh, personnel to validate systems or understand vendor validation data. What thoughts do you have around that in terms of where people can find information like that? Really interesting question. Um, you know, I, I sort of see this as, as what I might kind of call it a pre-competitive question that, yes. that allows, you know, small organizations and large organizations to have equal information. So there's not sort of an information gap. Yes. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to solve for it. First of all, signaling, this is something that needs to be solved is number one, right? Yes. Um, and then either... Um, Cross um, industry professional or trade organizations might yeah. be one way to solve it. Um, yeah. Something like bio or, or pharma. Another way to get there might be on the clinical research side. So, for example, in ACRO. Yeah. Uh, another way to get there might be for it to be taken on in some way, shape, or form as it relates to an agency project um, that was brought to us, for, uh, you know, in, in some um, way. But the, being really careful that we can't just take on things immediately. Um, because we have to make sure that we are doing the right kind of prioritization of the work mm -hmm. internally. But I think that the core point that you're really bringing up here is that there are um, common tools that are needed that actually help to speed essentially work all across industry. And this is an example of a common tool. And we need to keep working on making sure that we surface the need and find places to get them developed as a way to make sure that everybody's got equal access to information. Yeah. You know, a kind of a similar question that came up was, will there be any future guidance on preferred video platforms for clinical research visits coming from the FDA? I think I might know the answer to that, but what was your point of view about that, if you know how FDA might comment on that? Yeah, I, I don't know any specifics on any guidance is coming. Um, and even if I did, I really couldn't talk about them at the moment. But, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, the the practical reality is that I see this understanding of who's essentially met the definitions that you need to have met um, in, in terms of um, capabilities and um, and uh, um, demonstrated demonstration of quality development, etc. That, that that is actually a shared need and a shared tool suite. And we need to make sure that they're available full stop. Okay. Um, now, earlier on, you talked about, um, actually, I was very happy to hear your eight out of 10 in the optimism <laughs> scale. Um, just talk a little bit more about what is making you optimistic around, you know, how we're going to get through this marathon, as you called it. And it's interesting. You know, as I, I was reflecting on the fact that I said um, eight to eight um, to nine, or eight, eight point, I think 8.8 8, um, on the, the scale. And it seemed um, completely disconnected from the other things that I was saying. I was like, huh, so maybe I'm just living in la-la land. Um, but, you know, I think that my optimism comes from several things. Uh, so despite all of the negative aspects of the pandemic, I have been um, just amazed every day about what I do see happening. 
Um, and so that actually every single day is the kind of thing that gets me out of bed and working harder. And if I'm getting out of bed and working harder, then I suspect that's happening for all the people around me, mm-hmm. both in my work community, as well as in the community, for example, on, on the video, and, and even in my neighborhood and with my kids and their schools and everything else. And so I actually am optimistic because I believe in ingenuity. And part of ingenuity is actually making sure that everybody is focused on finding creative problem, solutions to the problem. So that's one thing that makes me optimistic is both community as well as commitment, but also the fact that I believe in the ingenuity that's going to come out of this. I also think that we've had a lot of things in medicine that we've wanted to see for a long time, and those are starting to now suddenly spin into action. And, um, you know, three examples. One is continuous learning and being able to um, essentially learn from the care of every patient. We're now starting to expect that of ourselves and really try and put that into action. Another thing that I think is um, something that we've wanted to see in medicine for a long time is a focus on all the humanistic aspects of medicine. And the sort of marriage of the news and what we see as a community, et cetera, has actually brought to the forefront the humanistic aspects of medicine. And then it's interesting that um, my third piece is something that has come up in a couple of your questions, which is mental health. And I, I really believe that mental health is very, very important. And this might also help to amplify the message of paying attention to mental health in ways that we have not in the past. So um, with regards to that, do you think, you know, um, we may see a kind of another tsunami of mental health related issues like suicide, you know, kind of a later peak? Um, What role do you think the FDA might have, if any, to kind of help with getting treatments for that? Because that's kind of very difficult area to do clinical studies in, you know, some of the people on this call have been involved in some of those. But do you have any thoughts about how we can proactively kind of really think about that? So, so first of all, I, I want to make sure that I say I'm, I'm neither, neither a clinical trials expert in, in, in suicidality um, nor a person who has a lot of interface with, with those parts of the FDA on a daily basis. Yeah. But, you know, I, I reflect on several things. Um, so the first thing I reflect on is when we first started moving to teleworking, um, I, I, as a person who was sort of really thinking about how do we manage our workforce, I was very focused on suicidality um, and, and the mental health risk um, in, in the shift of our workforce. And so the first part of your question was, you know, do we think that we might see a wave of despair and, and mental health concerns? And, and I, I sincerely believe that's a real risk. We saw it after 9-11. We um, know that this is a pandemic that has had a um, really substantive effect on a lot of people. So um, I think that this is a real problem, and I think it's a real problem that we're all going to have to face. It means, though, that um, just like a lot of the other aspects of what's happening with COVID-19, we better learn really quickly as we're, um, as, we're moving for, as we're moving through this, that you know, we can't wait and say five years from now, oh, wait a second, suicides went up. And um, maybe now for the next pandemic, we'll plan for suicides. We actually need to be learning that there's changes and what we need to be putting in place. And I think that some of it's going to be medical product related and some of it's going to be social yeah. um, we, and, and healthcare delivery related. And we can't wait to do a whole bunch of one-offs. We actually have to think about how these pieces come together. I, I appreciate that. That makes sense. Um, now, Let's talk about kind of the future a little bit. So let's say you've done the marathon um, or things that at least got to the point where you can travel again. Uh, where would be the, what, the first place that you would like to go to once you can travel? Oh, um, so my family and I were building a house um, in Winter Park, Florida, just outside of Orlando. And uh, I'd like to travel to Orlando to see our new house. <laughs> I actually see that some of our friends on the call here live in that area. <laughs> They'll hear that they've got new neighbors coming. That's great. And you're, you're, if I remember correctly, you're from Florida anyway, right? Right. Yes, I grew up in Orlando. or I actually went to Winter Park High School. And um, right. so I'm moving home. Excellent. And that would be great. <laughs> you, um, now, once you've gone and supervised the house being built and all that, is there a foreign destination that you'd uh, think you'd like to go to? What would be your pick? 
You know, so um, I, I'm the acting CIO of the FDA. So for cybersecurity concerns, I can't travel for him at the moment. Um, so I've had to actually wipe that out of my memory as um, plans of my places to go. Well, let me ask you another way. If you were to get a VR headset <laughs> and be able to visit somewhere, where would you go? Uh, so it's like it's in my avatar. Is that, is that the way I would do this? Yeah. <laughs> If I could send my avatar, um, so right now what had been high on my list is I wanted to go to Istanbul. Um, I think even though uh, there's a, a lot of potential challenges, um, I, I absolutely always wanted to go, and I'm just going to keep it on my list until I get to go. Good idea. I agree with you. That's great. And are there any activities that you currently aren't doing that you would be eager to get back to once we can all get out of the houses? Well, you know, I do like going to work, so I would be, um, I, I, I'd like to do that. But, you know, um, so my oldest um, is a soccer player um, in a D1 school, and um, he's not been able to play. And I have suddenly discovered that I miss soccer games. I didn't, I would never have thought I would say that, but it is true. <laughs> Oh, so Orlando and soccer games, we've got to we'll look after. Exactly. I know I promised you to uh, finish so you can get prepared for your, your next call. I know you've got your you know, 18 hour days. Um, can I ask you that as we go through the marathon, we'll come back to you again, see if you have time maybe later on to. I'm sure there's going to be a very long summer for all of us going through things. So I'll, I'll definitely come back and see if we can steal a bit of more of your time maybe later in the summer, possibly. Uh, as the marathon is going on, if that's okay with you, but we'll see if we can get some of your time if possible. Because I'm sure there's there's a couple of pages of questions I haven't gone through. So I'm sure we'll want you asking more questions from you if that's okay. So really appreciate it if that's possible and uh, enjoyed discussing these issues with you. And thank you for your very open quest, uh, answers to my questions. I really appreciate that. Do you have any final thoughts or words for a group of uh, drug developers who, you know, are... Uh, willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to do the right thing. Is there anything you want to say to to the group before you leave? I, I think the thing I would like to say to the group is we're all in this together. Um, each of you are, are, are developing individual products. Think about those products as part of an overall and evolving story and how do we make sure that we are solving this story together because that's going to be the most successful strategy. That's good. Thank you as always, Amy. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. And thank you, everyone else. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this CNS Summit podcast. To get more episodes on your device automatically, be sure to subscribe to the CNS Summit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also get this on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements.